Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is July the 11th in 2022, and my guest is Michael Strong. Michael Strong is the founder of the Socratic Experience and the author of books, including The Habit of Thought, From Socratic Seminars to Socratic Practice. He's one of the most experienced designers of innovative school programs in the United States. Michael, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here, Nicholas. Michael, what do you do and why do you do it? Well, as I always tell my students, I love learning and I hate school. I think school is a terrible place to learn for many people. For some, it's fine. Maybe 20 to 30 percent it works. But that leaves 70 to 80 percent where it doesn't work. And I think at some point it's going to become obsolete. So I, for 35 years, I've been in education, creating innovative schools, as you mentioned. Most recently, the Socratic Experience, a virtual school for students grades 3 through 12, where we do a highly personalized program that includes Socratic dialogue, a personalized mathematics, uh, entrepreneurial projects, and creative professional projects. Uh, and we, some people describe us as homeschooled by professionals. That is, we create a highly personalized experience for children who are entrepreneurial, creative, or intellectual. Fantastic. So what's the problem with the current school system that you're solving? <laughs> You know, first of all, I'm an autodidact, and I think that most entrepreneurs need to be autodidacts. You know, you're constantly needed to learn. I think in the future, the more routine any kind of learning is, the less likely that human beings will be optimized for it. That is, the whole thing about AI and robotics taking over is a real thing. And the better we are at learning new things, solving problems in unstructured situations, um, interpersonal skills. That is, in many ways, I see um, optimizing ourselves as humans vis-a-vis -vis, um, that which robotics and AI can do better than us is going to be an, a tremendous need in the 21st century. And I think traditional schooling is all about rote learning. Um, you know, there are a few exceptions here and there, but mostly students Are learning to memorize things. I was great at memorize and forget tests, but you know now I Google everything. You know there are if you are learning mathematics uh, as a series of you know steps, that's idiotic because any serious uh, problem solving in the future is not going to be kind of a rote mathematic problem. So insofar as students are memorizing and doing things step by step while also developing bad habits, school is just actively damaging. So can you describe the program that you offer to students at TSE instead of traditional schooling? Sure. So there is a synchronous component and an asynchronous component, all focused on secondary, even more high school. So the synchronous component consists of a two-hour block in the morning where the students start with uh, a discussion on personal growth, And the guide, we call them guides rather than teachers, will ask a question such as how do you set goals? How do you learn from your mistakes? Um, how do you deal with anger? What do you do when you're not getting along with friends? It's basically how to be a better person in all of the countless ways we all need to become better people. And we use all kinds of diverse materials from you know, personal growth, personal optimization, that kind of literature. The next piece is Socratic dialogue about texts, uh, where we read conceptually difficult texts, philosophy, literature, psychology, anthropology, a lot of classics, but not entirely classics. And the idea is to think and discuss ideas, um, but trying to understand the ideas of uh, thinker. 
And that both, uh, first of all, kids love to argue, so they love the intellectual engagement. But the other thing is they also learn to read difficult material. And when I talk about being an autodidact, a key ability is the ability to read anything. Um, so that correlates with SAT verbal gains. I'm actually a big fan of uh, the SAT. And if you are a very good reader, you should score well on the SAT. So our students typically have larger than average annual gains on the SAT verbal. And then finally, this leads to writing. I write a lot as an adult, and writing is, for me, 95% thinking. Um, students who spend an hour a day in intellectual dialogue uh, are ready to write essays. So we help them take the positions they have taken during arguments with their peers and organize that into, yeah, what's your main point? What are your supporting points? And really, I see writing as just organizing the beliefs one has into a coherent fashion and learning to structure arguments is a superpower in life. So we coach writing in class, but also we have one-on-one -on -one writing tutoring and we also have um, asynchronous help with writing via Google Docs. Um, the other piece is STEM. In STEM, we have a self-paced mathematics program where the expectation, we use MathSpace, it's a piece of math software. The expectation is students do one year of math per year, but they can go at their own pace. And we've had students do, we have them set goals. We've had students do a year and a half, two years, in one case, four years of math in one year. We've also had students with learning differences or who've had a bad time with previous mathematics. Maybe they only do half a year of math in one year. And if that's what's best for that child, the parents approve, that's okay with us. Um, the idea too is to be doing it all the time. So often students get their math goals done over the summer. So it's not about school, it's just during the school year, it's let's set goals and achieve those goals. Science includes both the traditional science topics, but we also have innovative science courses. We had the science of video games, the biology of human optimization, a Java coding course, that kind of thing. The other thing is every student has a personal project. The goal is for every student to be doing adult level professional work or better by the age of 18. I've had students start companies, write novels, uh, I had one who was a day trader, somebody else who did a website for the American Idol finalist. I had a student who did a music festival in Austin, three-day music festival, $80,000 budget. Um, whatever it is, we help students through mentoring to create great projects. Students meet with their mentors one-on-one, -on -one, 20 to 30 minutes a week, and that helps give them a sense of direction, both academically and with respect to their projects. And I would say the combination of the group personal growth plus the personal projects, plus the one-on-one -on -one mentoring gives our students a much greater sense of personal ownership um, with respect to where they're going. And then finally, we have electives. The students can take all kinds of different electives. One way to think about it is um, in an age of Coursera and Udemy, um, students can take anything on earth. I've had students take Harvard CS50, the Harvard Introduction to Computer Science, um, UPenn economics course, so they get an Ivy League economics course. We also offer internally through our own staff, uh, Spanish, history, art, music, fitness, audio engineering, video production, um, debate club, you know, all kinds of things. And so basically there's a Socratic core with mentoring, the personal projects, uh, personal growth. And then there's uh, also a, one thing I didn't mention is there's some math problem solving in addition to the self math. So they do solve problems and group activities. So it's super engaging. Students are thinking, talking, arguing when they're together, and they're setting their own goals and achieving their own work when they are solo. And is it fully remote? It is fully remote. My whole life I've done brick and mortar schools, but the great thing about COVID, it's say it like that, but um, most people are complaining about virtual education because ours is primarily dialogue-based and personal interest-based. It worked out really well remotely. So since COVID, I've launched with Socratic Experience as a remote school. We do have some partnerships with brick and mortar schools where we pipe in our content and then the brick and mortar school does the, you know, art, the physical activity, communities and so forth. So we can work with virtual schools like, I mean, brick and mortar schools like that. Where are your students coming from and why do they come to the Socratic Experience? Well, that's a great question. First, we have a remarkably international audience. You know, we have students, of course, in the United States, but also Mexico, Panama, Canada, Pakistan, Iraq. We've had students from Egypt and Britain. We have guides from Turkey, Mexico, uh, Eswatini. So one great thing about being virtual is we can be tremendously international. I've got people interested in Asian time zones 
but we have not yet expanded to Asian time zones. Um, and they come to us primarily because for whatever reason, the existing system does not work well for them. A lot of our parents are entrepreneurs or creative professionals themselves. Many of our kids are entrepreneurial or creative, you know, creatives, and they find the one size fits all jump through the hoop schooling to be tedious and meaningless. It's not serving their needs. And so we provide them with a place where they can have a warm, positive community while pursuing their interests and being supported in doing so and developing high level reading, writing, math skills. Let's take a step back. What is the purpose of education and how did it evolve over time? That's a great question. So for me, and this is actually what our internal uh, mission statement is, it's lifelong happiness and well-being. If a school is not helping your child to, to become happy over the course of their life, happy and well, then it's failing. Of course, that's a difficult goal to measure. I've been influenced by the Greeks who are in ancient Greece, Uh, call no man happy until he's died. But and we can't, of course, do that as a metric. But, you know, you, you think about um, the the state. I, I'll blame the state. And, you know, I, I know you're German, but we Americans blame, blame the Prussian education system for this top-down state uh, system that Horace Mann brought to the United States. And since around the world, governments control K-12 education around the world. It's arguably the most socialized sector of the economy other than perhaps, you know, the judicial system. But um, governments began to control education, and it started very small. Um, you know, in the United States, uh, public education in the 19th century was a few hours a day, a few months a year, uh, just a basic reading, writing, arithmetic. And uh, most of the time, the kids were not in school. But gradually, it ratcheted up um, until it became, you know, 13 years, and now they want government preschool. And... You know, a longer school year, more hours per day. Um, gradually, government controlled the um, curriculum to a greater extent. There was a school consolidation. In 1920, there were 200,000 school districts in the U.S. By 1970, only 20,000 school districts. So, you know, an order of magnitude reduction in the number of independent districts in the United States. Um, you know, the teachers' unions have all sorts of rules. So what happened is kind of boiled the frog kind of thing. Governments got involved and gradually they controlled more and more and more to the point where uh, many teachers have relatively little autonomy. And insofar as human beings are, um, you know, the most, I think, human individuality is absolutely amazing. Uh, governments want, it to, want educa education to be legible to the government. They've got to see what we're doing to make government funds accountable. They want to say, this is what the, is being done in the classroom. And there are large numbers of human beings for whom that's not the right way to educate. Let me give you a bit of data and then I'll let you go to the next question. Just in terms of um, it not serving children at the high school level in the United States, there was a study by Yale a couple of years ago, 75% of American high school students are unhappy. Gallup, the respected polling organization has found only one third of high school students are engaged in learning. Pre-COVID, 37% were seriously depressed and 19% were suicidal. Uh, teen suicides are up three times since the 1950s. Two teen suicides increased during the school year, uh, let up a little bit over Christmas break and summer break, and then you know back to school season is back to suicide season. I see um, secondary school as mass misery for millions of kids. I want to ponder a bit on the question of the purpose of education. I read a very interesting book by Brian Kaplan that's called The Case Against Higher Education. Brian Kaplan argues that education is mostly, though not all, about signaling desirable traits to potential employers and only little about skill development. So he's probably describing more a status quo in the United States, but that kind of opens up the question, what is the purpose of education? Because skill development seems to be something that you know, even very good schools probably suboptimally cater or deliver to, right? We know we have a lot of studies that it's less the quality of a better or Ivy League education that this gets in terms of the skills that it gives you, but it selects students that are already smarter than others, right? So is there a case to be made or would you make a case for education as skill development? So what I would say is, uh, I'm a big fan of Brian Kaplan's book, by the way. I think he should have called it The Case Against Schooling rather than The Case Against Education. But I see the 
the fact that it's mostly signaling in the current status quo is largely due to the fact that um, government controls education, even through federal loans at the post-secondary level. You know, in order to be eligible for government loans, um, universities have to adhere to various uh, stipulations from the government uh, to be accredited at the, as a private school in the United States, uh, such that a private school can issue visas and get foreign students. They have to submit to all sorts of you know, government mandates. And so basically, I think the signaling model is due, due largely, to, rather than a um, real skill development model, is due largely to the dominance of governments and government in the sector. Again, that's a different way of saying legibility for the state. The state has to see it as a consequence rather than develop human skills. Um, it's mostly stupid stuff that people jump through hoops and then you have a signal. But going back to kind of what real skill development, a place that I'm very passionate about is, you know, the digital marketplace. If you think of skills like um, digital marketing or video, video production, you know, you produce your own videos, but not everybody does. Graphic design, UX, UI design for websites, software development. Um, there are all kinds of skills that are relatively in demand and lucrative. And yet both K-12 and for the most part, university do, does not prepare students for these at all. So I, uh, I've known students who are teenagers who figure out algorithms on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, and become great at sometimes being influencers, sometimes digital marketing. You know, they are experts at these social media platforms that no professor and no high school teacher in the U.S. can probably compete or very few. And of course, no curriculum at all goes into this. And so skill development is not about learning algebra two, which I think is mostly a waste of time. Skill development is about what marketable, valuable skills can you produce? And at this day and age, if you can get more eyeballs on a website, you are golden. So people with those skills, often self-cultivated, are valuable. And that has nothing to do with uh, you know signaling. Just one other metric, uh, a poll of freelancers asked them if skills were more valuable than credentials. 95% of freelancers said that skills were more, more valuable than credentials. So in parallel to Brian Kaplan's government-controlled credentialized world, and of course, things like medicine, it's all about credentials. Because of government, you have to have traditional credentials. In the world of freelancing, including the digital skills I'm talking about, it's almost a pure landscape of skill development. You know, no case of digital marketing. Can you bring eyeballs to this website? Done. I agree. And it's probably also not a contradiction with what Brian Kaplan is saying, because he's also arguing or against or or massively cutting, you know, government um, spending on education because it basically leads to overspending on education that's often detached from market conditions. What about social mobility? Some people, what they like about schools and especially about public schools is that they feel or they say that it provides kids, especially from a lower socioeconomic status, with um, sort of equal opportunity in a way, and therefore is a mechanism for social mobility. What do you think of that argument? You know, most of the last 20 years, my brick and mortar schools have been in Austin and San Francisco. And, you know, I see these teenage boys, especially in Palo Alto, who are coding, and some of them are making good money as software developers by the time they're 15, 16, 17. Meanwhile, a poor kid in the inner city might be valedictorian. And some of these kids could drop out of high school. I've known high school dropouts, you know, software developers who make a lot of money. Um, meanwhile, a valedictorian straight A's in her inner city public high school uh, could have absolutely no valuable skills. She could even go or he could go to college and be a valedictorian at a lot of state colleges and still have no valuable skills. And so this is where, um, you know, something Brian Kaplan does well is differentiating ability from the value of the education. And once one controls for ability, much of the value of education disappears. Um, and so I think we have this, it, most of schooling is this blind ritual, again, boiling the frog, maybe once a little bit of reading, writing math is okay, but now it's this you know, humongous amount of time and money that actually adds relatively value. And in fact, teaches, you know, the other thing is going back to autodidacticism, um, the entrepreneurial kids that I work with, they are learning stuff on their own. You know, they want to learn new coding language. Um, you know, they want to learn to edit their videos. They go online and learn it. I just saw a survey. Most teens 
uh, are learning more skills offline, you know, out of school, online on their own than in school. And so it's deceptive to believe that if one goes to school and studies the stuff in school, that ipso facto, therefore, one will be, you know, uh, ready to get a good job. And I think, you know, there's been a decline in the value of a college degree in recent years. Um, and I think a lot of that is once upon a time, colleges sorted for ability and did end up being valuable. Now we've got all these people, low ability people going to college. College itself adds little or no value. They come out um, in debt, can't get a job or depressed. And I think they rightly feel betrayed. But for me, the big betrayal is the notion that uh, taking academic courses had any intrinsic value whatsoever. Exactly. So it seems to me that it it just fails to generate social mobility, if that's the goal, right? <laughs> like, and I, yeah. Yeah. So um, there's an interesting author and blogger named Freddie DeBoer, who's someone who's actually very left-wing, but a big critic of the education system right now. And it's basically his argument. School is basically assorting people by natural ability into certain tracks that they mostly stay in for the rest of their life, right? Well, exactly. And then part of my point about these digital jobs is there are kids and going back to the creatives, I, I do work with a lot of creatives, they're creatives who might not be able to get a decent grade in high school math courses, but they could be making, you know, decent money as creatives, uh, if they instead of having to go to school, they're actually learning how to develop valuable skills. So I see school as actively re public school is actively reducing social mobility. For a significant portion of the population. Exactly. And I think anyone can tell no stories from, you know, people that they went to school with who haven't been doing very well, especially when it comes to sort of traditional subjects, but have later excelled sort of freed from the shackles of school. I know many people that, you know, there's people with that had very bad grades at my school. They were kind of very creative, very restless, but also very assertive and very much self-driven. You know, that had very bad grades in school, but later ended up as entrepreneurs or at Goldman Sachs or places like that, right? Exactly, um, exactly. In some ways, I see schooling as there are certain personalities that are good at school. They go on to impose the system on other people. And uh, I'm looking for the revolt of everybody else who, when we discover um, how, uh, you know, it's basically the class interest of the school kids. Uh, those who are good at school. And I think we're seeing a, a growing revolt against that. To what degree or, or how do you think about the question of, of natural ability? Um, so we know that genetics and IQ do play a large role and we can fairly well correlate the success of children, at least in the contemporary education system, by natural ability. But it doesn't mean to 100%, but to a very large degree. Can we teach children a better way or so how can we overcome um, limitations when it comes to natural ability? There again, I, I think of schooling as defining what counts as natural ability. So if you're talking, you know, mathematical ability, you know, certainly not everybody's good at math, for sure. I think there's definitely some people who really have natural talents in math, some people much less. Um, You know, and so you could say, okay, therefore, we've got all, got all these people who are bad at math. But this is where I'm a passionate advocate for, yeah, the creators, the entrepreneurs, people are empathetic, people who are really good at sales. You know, I think that, um, again, you mentioned it before, there are a lot of people who may not have a certain IQ score, and they may never be able to be very good at certain kinds of mathematics. Uh, but it's they are forced to fail because of this one-size-fits-all school environment. And so I actually think that whatever we count as valuable is contingent on the global marketplace. Uh, it's great right now because of software eating the world. Mathematical talent is incredibly valuable. Uh, people with PhDs in math can get good jobs in finance. But 400 years ago, uh, you know, having a particular ability in math might not have been so valuable. Um, you know, maybe then, you know, foreign languages, sheer aggression, sheer, you know, dominance, who knows? Uh, but I always like to, because people get so stuck on this, oh, uh, it's all this linear uh, genetic relationship. I think, well, we have a system that is actively filtering out the talents of most young people. Uh, I was good at math. I, you know, I'm grateful that I could, you know, be the top of the class in every class. 
But again, this is the class interest. So, you know, I've known people who are brilliant at math who have no valuable skills in the real world. So IQ is interesting. Math is interesting. All this is interesting. And as, again, going back to Austrian economics, there are an endless number of niches. And if one's really looking at niches for value creation, the question of what opportunities are there to create value, I think is largely orthogonal from, say, and picking on math because you know, that's, the, that's the kind of high status one. Um, I think there's uh, quite a discrepancy between strictly, you know, one kind of value creation and all the other kinds of value creation that are out there. Does it help to be able to process a lot of information quickly? For sure. Um, can we improve people's ability to process information, to do things quickly? I think we can. Um, so just in the verbal ability, I think that verbal ability is largely or, or is significantly influenced by how much and the verbal environment in which young people are raised. Um, doesn't mean there's not a genetic component, but I certainly think there's an environmental component. There's a whole literature on the verbal environments of children and how those impact them. So again, I, I think the in some ways the IQ debate is sort of a distraction from the fact that school is limiting the lives of called billions of human beings. I certainly sympathize with that view that there's a much more diverse array of skills and, you know, we should think about schooling and education in, much more, in a much more multivectorial way, right? So, you know, if you look at someone that's very good at math, they won't have any problem doing things like engineering or doing quantitative finance or something like that. We'll get high paying jobs in that and they're definitely very high IQ people. But when you look at something like sales, or design, right? So in design, you don't need to solve complex mathematical or engineering problems, right? And you can be highly successful as a designer nowadays, especially if you work in technology because of the way, you know, we we're building, we're building software products and user interfaces, right? Or another example is sales, right? So in many, in almost any profession, the people on the top, like CEOs or partners at consulting firms or partners in law firms are salespeople, right? So sales is one of the most important skills. And it's also, you know, something that doesn't necessarily require you to solve very complex problems. It just requires sort of a high degree of emotional intelligence, right? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of sales, certainly, of course, with design as well. But yeah, sales, both K-12 and academia are actively bigoted against sales and the cultivation of sales talent. And while there are natural salespeople, I also think all skills can be developed, all skills can be improved. And uh, yeah, salespeople can make a lot of money. Um, you know, and so I think that's, that's a really important category that's under-recognized. And there are people you know, who could be making significantly higher incomes if they had been developed as salespeople. In some cases, that also helps you know, the, the verbal side. This is where hours in Socratic and writing, high-level verbal skills does make a sale, salesperson more valuable. You know, if you're um, in real estate, you want to be able to you know, read real estate contracts and uh, you know, write up different kinds of things. Uh, but you know, real estate sales, very lucrative career in, in many cases. Um, and uh, beyond a certain threshold of uh, you know, mathematics, you know, basic finance, Uh, you don't need anything beyond that to be great in real estate sales. And I think that would lead me to something of how I would start formulating a vision for the education system of the future. It could be something like a discovery process, right? So you're discovering what um, children or students are relatively better at than others, right? Because, you know, being good at something makes you valuable to the rest of the community and makes you very confident, And kind of discovering and honing in on the kinds of skills where students excel as a and sort of effectively finding and searching that out instead of making everyone kind of um, putting everyone kind of on the same pedestal and everyone having to learn the same thing and being compared across the same dimensions. Absolutely. And I would add something else. So that's one of the reasons why I have a mentoring program is ideally the mentor can help the student identify their strengths. Um, you know, there are systems like, you know, Gallup has a strengths finder and that helps some. But I would say something I'm trying to transmit to the mentors in my school is, you know, my breadth of knowledge of, uh, you know, career options. Uh, most people in education 
do not know about the digital economy and all the cool things or even, you know, design, like you said. Um, and so I think in the future, you know, part of one of the roles of mentors, and I think um, adolescents in particular do need mentors. They need somebody who cares about them, who understands them, who helps them figure life out in many ways. But ideally, the mentors would have deep knowledge of um, not only the current job market, but the job projected job market five to 10 years out. What kinds of skills are going to be more valuable? Because um, when I see, you know, people taking, um, you know, occupational tests from 20 years ago go about jobs that are gone uh, or, you know, a- anybody who's not keeping up with what's happening in the, in the job market uh, is not going to be a valuable mentor with kids. I agree. It's like when you look back in hindsight, or I do, at the schooling system, there's so many things that strike you as weird, right? So why are we teaching things that aren't relevant in the world by people that have little experience in the job market? Exactly. And just to kind of emphasize that, since you're an entrepreneur too, you know, with my time and my attention, every second matters where, you know, I'm constantly learning voraciously in all sorts of directions. And for me personally, the thought of sitting in a classroom where a teacher is talking at me about irrelevant stuff for six hours a day, I would so need to be medicated, so-called medicated, or I'd run away screaming. When one has the ability to, you know, direct one's own attention Uh, towards goal um, and realizes the kind of rate of learning that's possible in that kind of a situation. You compare that to, uh, you know, the the value of, of where one's attention is placed in 13 years of K-12 education. You know, tens of, you know, I think I counted like 14,000 hours wasted mostly. Other things that I found later to be just weird. So, you know, testing your individual ability or kind of um, regurgitating knowledge that you learn, right? So again, it doesn't make sense that much in the modern world where any knowledge is at your fingertips, right? Uh, and also I like this, this saying, you know, when you're in school and when you're asking a smarter person what to do in your test to solve a problem, that's cheating, right? And when you do that later in the real world, When you ask someone smarter what to do, you call the CEO. It's a very important skill to work together with other people that have different kinds of abilities better than your own and to collectively solve problems. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why when our students to do these independent projects where by 18, they're doing adult level professional work, we don't care how they do it. You know, if they're starting a company, they can do everything real world people do. If they're writing a novel, they can get all the help they want. You know, if they're... Um, you know, producing a concert. Yeah. Go out, get people to help you. So real, any kind of real world activity involves a fundamentally different set of, uh, yeah, skills and standards and everything. There isn't a standard for excellence. Um, I like to you know, tell the students, especially in the real world, you need to be so amazing. They can't ignore you. That's a Steve Martin line, but um, having a goal that's outside the schooling system does not mean a lack of rigor. One's trying to be in any sense, entrepreneurial, the standard of rigor is much, much higher. And, you know, merely to get paid, you know, to get paid for creative professional work is a very different thing than to get an A in an art class. So, uh, you know, I try to get students to understand that in the real world, you're exactly right. Um, You know, you can collaborate, you can ask people questions, all of that. And at the end of the day, uh, to be valuable, you've got to produce valuable work one way or another. Can we teach children to be entrepreneurs and i'm asking because it seems to me being an entrepreneur starting a business requires a lot of skills and personality traits such as being comfortable with risks that's something that few people are it requires a lot of tenacity and persistence you know that's something that again many people prefer easier options and also it requires navigating very complex human systems, right? Working together with other people. So it is a very, very high degree of skills and sort of the right personality traits required that seem to be rare. So do you think we can teach children to be entrepreneurs or is there a way to find more entrepreneurs? The way way I would think of that is certainly there is, as it were, natural entrepreneurial talent. And I would say in my experience, it's highly gendered. I see some teenage boys that are just like, um, from a young age, totally into it. You know, that's how they think. Um, I've got one student who 
trades Instagram handles over the weekend and sometimes makes 4,000 bucks in a weekend. Uh, you know, he's just out there doing businesses all the time. So there is kind of the natural ability thing for sure. And other people who totally crave comfort and security, especially security and would never be an entrepreneur. That said, with most human abilities, even if there's kind of a natural or a normal distribution, I think we can shift it one direction. I think culture uh, provides a context. And so if one is embedded in a culture where um, risk-taking, just taking an initiative are more welcomed and supportive, and another culture where um, conformity is more supportive, you know, I, I'm in favor of shifting a culture, certainly the culture of my schools, but shifting cultures in the direction of take initiative. And therefore, even if they're not the entrepreneur, they're more likely to be a valuable startup team member. Um, so, yeah, maybe a small percentage of my students or students in general are, are fully blown natural entrepreneurs. But can we increase the extent to which um, young people are encouraged to take initiative, uh, take responsibility, get the job done, that kind of thing, you know, without being told what to do? I think we can very much increase that. And, you know, pretty much every startup is a team initiative. So the more they have their, I'm thinking of cultures maybe where, uh, there's not a culture of uh, entrepreneurship or risk taking. The more we can shift towards, um, you know, I'm tempted to say, uh, you know, America is rightly known as a place where people take risks, take initiative, just just do it. A lot of this is attitude. In much of the world, people believe they have to be given permission to do something. Um, you know, in class, you have to raise your hand to get permission to do something. I would say something that's very distinctive about entrepreneurs, in my experience, is they don't ask for permission. They just do it. And I think you can train people to just do it, be okay with failing and just do it again. And if they don't be the entrepreneur, join a startup team and get the benefits from that. So the question is a bit broad, but I'd like to collect a few insights how education systems are better or worse across countries, kind of to see a bit what can we learn from. Like, for example, Finland is very often ranked as the best country in the world when it comes to education. Is there something to that? And can we learn something from Finland? Or can you think of other countries that we can learn things from? If you want, there is a case for state-controlled education. And to take a different example, you know, Singapore has very high test scores. But of course, Singapore wants their students to become more creative and entrepreneurial. That is, there's a top-down system that can do some things well. And, you know, Singapore, Shanghai, China, um, let's control things and have lots of discipline and competition and um, you can get extraordinary results. Um, Finland is famous, but I think a lot of the media around Finland, I, I certainly like the direction Finland has gone and it's much less um, top-down and structured in some ways than, say, Singapore Chinese education system. But I think a lot of the media uh, around Finland is because public schools have so obviously failed in the U.S. Advocates of public schools like to shout about Finland. Um, but what I always say is Finland is the most ethnically homogeneous uh, country in Europe, and um, it has a smaller population than Houston. So if somebody could prove to me that they could get Houston to perform as well as Finland does, I'll begin taking them seriously. Of course, I think there's not a chance. It turns out that culture, um, you know, certainly genetics, but also culture are key variables. Um, Finnish Americans in the United States, uh, there's a case to be made. I don't haven't seen the best data on it, but there's a case to be made that Finnish Americans in the United States perform better than Finnish students in Finland. And part of that is, on, by some metrics, Minnesota uh, outperforms Finland, and Minnesota has, uh, you know, certainly one of the concentrations of Finland, Finnish people. It's not only Finnish people. That's why I couldn't get good data. But I, I think this is where, um, yeah, I like the Finnish system, but is it a model for anybody else? No, this is where I think in the future we have to be, you know, private. Let's let people evolve. We need a market just like we need a market in food. Um, you know, when you think about food, there are farms, there are restaurants, there are convenience stores, there are gourmet restaurants, um, there are ethnic restaurants. You know, you, you can cook food at home, you can grow your own food, you know, like homeschooling. The diversity of the food market is extraordinary. And I think we need just as much diversity in education and any top-down system will not deliver that. You wrote something interesting the other day on LinkedIn that school choice is 
regarded as a right-wing issue in the United States, yet the countries that have one of the most extensive school choice systems in the world are Sweden and the Netherlands. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think that's sort of a pragmatism. I think that um, you know in the U.S. everything's so polarized, and also of course the teachers' unions have a lot of power. But I think um, you know countries that are more pragmatic are open to experimenting with it, and I, I do think that you know Sweden and the Netherlands are r relatively pragmatic, and you know there are there have been criticisms of Sweden because uh, their test scores went down. Uh, after school choice, but I, I think that you know I think that especially kind of STEM. There's an interesting phenomenon. This is separate from school choice issue, but countries that are more egalitarian have fewer women in STEM. Um, so, for instance, Scandinavian countries have fewer women in STEM, whereas you know Arabic countries, who are typically not very gender egalitarian, have more women in STEM. I think that STEM provides social mobility through discipline. Um, and so if women can't get ahead otherwise, they go into STEM there. But, you know, in Sweden, hey, it's a cushy situation. Why am I going to work hard on math problems? And I actually think as countries become prosperous, uh, this includes the U.S., um, I think that there are some people who are going to love, um, you know, serious STEM and other people, hey, I can have a great life in sales or creative professional jobs or all kinds of other things. Um, you know, in a certain sense, I think that a lot of kids are just not going to be motivated when given a choice to study lots of math. I would like to spend some time comparing the United States and Germany a bit, because I know the German school system quite well. Um, my father is a public school teacher, and um, I've experienced it myself, right? So what's interesting is that Germany is... As you said, the Americans see Germany and Bismarck kind of as the originator of that sort of very rigid, very hierarchical, very centralized, monolithic public school system. But at the same time, Germany is famous for a very well-developed vocational training system where the United States has largely pushed college for all while dismantling vocational training for education for decades. Why is that? Why did it happen that way in the United States? That's a really good question. And first, I want to acknowledge how Germany has fantastic vocational education. And you might know better than I, but it, it appears to be highly respected there. And I think somehow... It's very respected. Um, I, it's very respected. And I know many people that... And so we have this three-tiered um, um, secondary school system, right? So you have literally a lower, medium, and higher tier. And only the higher tier qualifies you for university. So it's kind of very brutal certification. You're more stupid, you're more smart, right? But um, through the vocational training system, there's many, I have, and I have many friends, I know dozens of stories, um, friends that initially failed in the traditional secondary school system and were in the lower tier, but later became more ambitious and became more confident. And after doing two or three years of vocational training, say as a mechatronic or as an auto mechanic, which is right now a highly, a profession that uses a lot of software. They got very relevant job skills. They got a lot of confidence. They earned money when they were starting when they were like 15 or 16. And they said, okay, I want to do more. So, and then you have several options to get um, sort of alternative ways towards higher education. No, it's a wonderful system. And I, th I think, you know, in the U.S., I'm old enough that we used to have somewhat more of a vocational education system when I was in school, but it was considered very low status and it wasn't connected to the workforce as, as well. I think part of what makes Germany work is more tightly connected to the workforce. We never had kind of that connection. Um, I do know. And, and then meanwhile, you know, I think Americans can be rigidly ideological and there was the college for all and it became an ideology, um, in the seventies. And so, as you say, the brutal, um, you know, you're going into this track, you're going into that track, huge pushback against that kind of thing in the United States in the, in the seventies. And we got into the let's prepare everyone for college. And I think that has been a disaster. And I do know people who are working towards an initiative. Um, and there's a model of this in Illinois where employers could decide what kinds of education to finance. And I think if employers This would include, um, you know, digital services and software, as well as things like automotive and space and all kinds of jobs. 
I think employers would finance very different kinds of schools, much more vocationally oriented schools than what we've got today. And so that's that's my hope is that's our path to a more like Germany is uh, let the employers finance the kind of education they actually regard as valuable. It seems to me that that is already happening in some areas in the United States that are very modern up and coming, right? So software development, for example, or Web3 or design, I see a lot of startups in the ad tech space that are providing that online. So they often do courses or boot camps in like two months or six months or 12 months. And students typically leave with a pretty good education that gets them much closer to getting their, to getting their first job. And that is kind of in a way, vocational training, right? Just Absolutely. not. And actually just before COVID, I saw that um, I think in the last five years, Boot camp enrollment was up 11x, and I think college enrollment was down 10%. And so, you know, the demand is tremendous, and I think that that trend is going to accelerate. What we have in Germany, and I was always wondering, could it work in the United States, is that the students work for a company, right? Mm -hmm. So typically half of the time they work for the company, say they go through different departments, through marketing, through sales, through know, compliance, and half of the other time they have coursework, typically with a university that they're a partner with. So that seems to me a very good deal because the company typically gets a very good shot at a highly trained person for a very specific purpose with them. Right. And the student gets some, you know, real world education, typically gets paid while doing that and sort of leaving with very relevant job skills and typically also a degree. It's a great system. I think it's a great system. And, you know, the, the other flip side of it, you know, uh, is if kids are bored and not learning valuable skills, they develop bad habits. Um, again, I think uh, a lot of our substance abuse and teen dysfunction uh, is because you've got so many kids who are bored and unhappy in school, they get in trouble. Whereas if they were actually doing something meaningful and relevant, um, in this case, in a vocational education like you described, um, I think that would reduce our adolescent dysfunction issue in the United States. Can you talk a bit about homeschooling in the United States? Sure. I'm a big enthusiast for homeschooling and You know, it's grown tremendously in the last 20 years during COVID. Um, estimates have doubled, black homeschooling up 4x. Um, it's become very diverse. Um, you know, here in Austin, which is in some ways one of the hotbeds of homeschooling, uh, there's actually not necessarily a sharp line between having your kids enrolled in a school and not. So the, there's an old-fashioned stereotype of homeschooling being mom alone in the kitchen with a you know, whiteboard or whatever. But um, there are all kinds of groups and activities. And you know, there's a one-day-a-week school where you just enroll your child in school for one day a week. And the other you know, four weekdays, they're homeschooled. Um, you can have math clubs and debate clubs and writing clubs. Um, you know, there are online, endless online options. Significant percentage of our students are homeschoolers, actually, either enrolled full-time or part-time, but they want the flexibility. So I think what, one of the things that's happening is originally homeschool, they're kind of The Christian homeschool community that was pedagogically traditional, and then there was the kind of John Holt hippie unschooling community. And both of those were relatively small, but they are growing rapidly. And now we've got a, an extraordinarily diverse ecosystem. You know, the learning pods, is learning pod a homeschool or is it a, you know, five parents, you know, getting together to teach their kids together? I like the idea that um, learning is learning and let's break down all the boundaries um, and again, I'm excited about uh, educational savings account in Arizona. Arizona just passed a law, 1.1 million all Arizona students are eligible. And those funds for the state per capita um, allocation, it's about 7,000 bucks per kid, um, homeschoolers can use that. And so now in Arizona, you can have $7,000 to um, you know, buy learning activities, uh, tutoring, games, curricula, anything you want to help your kid learn. And when you think about it, To homeschool of 7,000 bucks, that's a huge amount of money for homeschooling. Um, and when you consider the value that the family gets um, relative to you know, most students in most public schools, what a big win for families. So is it like a tax refund, basically, for parents that don't want to send their kids to school? There are some versions like that. And then there are also some where there's, it gets complicated. The policy gets complicated. But there are... 
um, states where uh, you can get a, a donation for subsidizing uh, this. It can be a tax refund, as you say. It can also be a corporate tax refund. Um, or the state can provide uh, an account. And in Arizona, it's more the state provides the funds. And there it's like a health savings account where you know you have a certain amount of money in your account and you could spend it as you see fit. And so um, parents in Arizona, if they want to use their account, um, can access their account and spend it on anything they regard as legitimate. And of course, if it's considered illegitimate, then um, they, you know, they can get in trouble. So there's an incentive to be responsible. But still, it's pretty flexible in terms of what, what counts as learning. And again, going back to the diversity of learning, you know, if your child is maybe uh, has dyslexic, dysgraphic, but is an incredible creator, maybe instead of doing seventh grade math, they ought to spend that time learning to produce amazing videos or animations or something like that. Yeah, as you, and as you said, homeschooling or unschooling is a rapidly growing market in the United States, which should be especially interesting for entrepreneurs in the ad tech space, um, because any rapidly growing market is an opportunity. And it's also a B2C market. So you can sell directly to parents and you have to don't have to go like through a school board or through a government ministry to sell kind of new coursework, new software, new tools for them to use, right? Or are there any barriers for entrepreneurs to, you know, create these kinds of tools and sell it to homeschoolers? No, I, th I think the, the main challenge is fragmentation. I, I've known a lot of people who, thought that, um, you know, selling to homeschoolers would be easy. And two things. One is very fragmented market. There's not really one central place. You know, there are various homeschool blogs and podcasts and so forth. But even there, uh, I would not be surprised to find that there are hundreds or thousands of homeschooling blogs and podcasts and whatnot. So very fragmented market. Um, and then, you know, If I guess there, are, if you can find a way to reach the market, I was going to say the other thing is a lot of homeschoolers are cheap. That's why Arizona at seven thousand bucks a pop is a lot of money. But once parents discover you don't need the school system, um, you know there are homeschool curricula for thirty bucks a month or whatever. It's free. There's a huge amount of free stuff, and so the challenge for entrepreneurs is how can I add value? That's there's a much more rigorous standard for adding value given that there's free content ubiquitous across the internet and low-cost low content also being sold. And so you really have to find a way to add value. You said also on your LinkedIn posts that it's actually a small percentage of the U.S. population that has access to alternative education. Did you mean by that anyone outside of Arizona? Right. Well, and the Arizona thing was brand new to be all of 1.1. It was just you know last week that it was signed. So this is brand new. Um, and in most places, uh, private schools are remarkably traditional for the most part. So, you know, public schools dominate the market. Charter schools originally designed to be innovative, but then they've been required to adhere to most public school standards. And then most private schools um, traditionally did what uh, you know, regular schools did. And, you know, maybe just with smaller class sizes and fancier theaters and swimming pools. So this whole field of, you know, I would say... I like to think of it as agency-based education. I think that's maybe more interesting than alternative, but that's really just taken off in recent years. And I think it's taken off in large part, you know, thanks to, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, famously Elon Musk started a, a school for his own children because he wasn't happy with all the existing options. Um, Synthesis is a spinoff. Uh, it's a virtual school education program. That's a spinoff of that. Um, but I think that there is a growing contingent of very intelligent, sophisticated um, education consumers who are ready to break with the system. And those are the ones driving, um, you know, this new innovative education market I'm talking about. How much do you know about the educational system in Latin America? Um, well, I've done a little bit of consulting out there, down there. And sadly, I would say it's extremely conventional, extremely Uh, you know, the curriculum is very much prescribed. The teachers have very little autonomy. Um, yeah, sadly, I think the education system in Latin America is pretty terrible. It's my short answer. Also, I talked to entrepreneurs. Um, I talked to an entrepreneur from Honduras who is doing a um, robotics training or education, right? So you have the hardware, you have the robot, 
And then you have a curriculum that teaches the children how to interact with it. So it teaches them about the interaction between software and hardware. And he's selling that on a subscription basis to private schools mostly. And what he told me I found very interesting. So in many Latin American countries, you have a largely failing public school system. So they opened up the doors for private schools. And these private schools are often very little regulated. So that is a good opportunity for him because he can sell to individual schools and administrators, right? And if it adds value to the bottom line, they can just buy it. And he also said there's very little boundaries across countries. So he started in Honduras, but it would be no problem for him to go to Costa Rica or to Colombia. So I thought that was a very interesting, it's, it's very interesting that there's a system of private schools in Latin America that could be an opportunity for educational innovation. Absolutely. And and I have a friend who um, does uh, an online STEM program that is kind of enrichment, but uh, he has found, sadly, in the Ukraine, I say sadly because, of course, he's got, um, it's been rough there since Russia invaded, to say the least, but he was dealing with a private school system in the Ukraine and then another one in Brazil. And the reason he found, uh, and these were thousands of students in both cases, and the reason he found that both of these um, private school systems were interested is that the, again, as you said, the failure of the public school system was so evident um, that they realized they had to do something different. So it's a little bit like, uh, you know, new, new legal jurisdictions like Prospera. I think uh, places where the failure is so evident are often, often ripest for innovation because at some point you get more and more people saying, I've got nothing to lose. Let's try this other option. And once entrepreneurs can show that they can get kids more engaged in real valuable learning and the kids are doing productive activities that will lead to happy, healthy, successful life and career. Um, yeah, I think people will peel away from the system. You mentioned Prospera. So to every listener that's new to the podcast, Prospera is a startup city in the country of Honduras on the island of Roatan that I'm based out of, and Michael also is very involved in. Michael, can you say what makes you, what, what makes you think that Prospera can be, or what could Prospera mean or do for uh, innovation and education? You know, one of the reasons that, to some extent, I've been emphasizing kind of mindset as an obstacle to innovation and education. There's obviously a supply problem and a demand problem, but many government, um, you know, in the United States, actually, there are, are states with a lot of freedom. Private schools are somewhat restricted in, say, New York and Pennsylvania and the Northeast more generally. But in Florida, Texas, California, actually, private schools have incredible freedom. Glad to hear they have freedom in Latin America. But often there are credentialing systems. And again, this goes into the occupational licensure problem in the U.S., I'm sure a problem in most of Latin America, where in order to get certain kinds of jobs, you have to have a credential. Um, actually, when I was working in Honduras, to work at a maquila, you had to have a high school diploma, which strikes me as insane. Why do you need a high school diploma to work at a maquila? Um, and I see all these credentialing systems as an obstacle to social mobility. So what's great about Prospera is um, there is none of the nonsense regulatory systems, whether it's um, you know the kinds of licenses that a teacher might need to have or the kinds of licenses a school might need to have or the kinds of licenses the graduates might need to get a job of some kind. Um, in Prospera, you could create an education system that was strictly based on the value you provide to the people being educated on the one hand and the employers on the other, um, with none of the inefficiencies of obsolete regulation um, slowing down value creation. So how would that, you would say, you'd say the system is purely based on the value it provides to children. How would you measure that value or how would consumers know who provides better value than others? Well, great question. So first of all, you know, since my wife's from Africa, I'm very focused on Africa. And, and there, you know, Senegal, the average GDP per capita is about $2,000 a year. Um, so I've got, again, I've got, you know, I, I mentioned earlier this teenager here in Austin who makes 4000 bucks in a weekend selling Instagram handles. You know, if I can get a teenager in Africa, say a 13, 14-year-old kid, to be making a dollar an hour, 
that kid is going to be the hero of the family. They're going to be raking in money like nobody in the community has ever raked in money before. You know, I'm exaggerating only a tiny bit. And so what? how do you know you're getting value? What if we could help young children, teenagers around the world from low-income areas make good money online? And, you know, maybe it's not making a dollar an hour at 14. Maybe it's making a dollar an hour at 18. Even if we graduate kids making a dollar an hour at 18, that is phenomenal in certainly Africa. Um, you know, and, and so some of this is, you know, it, the, the grades, the traditional curriculum, did I get an A in ninth grade algebra? Uh, I don't see that as a valuable metric if what we're talking about is human capital creation. Human capital means we've invested in activities that result in a higher earning power um, for that human being. And, you know, famously, uh, Magat always says, my wife Magat says, the first job of a PhD in Senegal is taxi driver. There are, there are so many overeducated, underemployed people, the sort of myth that, oh, educational is all of our problem. No, what we've done is because education is controlled by government, we have all these overeducated people that can't get jobs. They're resentful, angry, and bitter. And it's because their, their schooling was not relevant to the workforce. Getting a PhD in you know, deconstructionist literary theory, absolutely worthless. Learning how to uh, you know, hack the algorithm for eyeballs in Instagram when you're 15, whoa, you're valuable. Simple as that. Also, there would be potentially financing options. So, for example, if you're a come from, you don't have a lot of income, so you can't afford better schools, you might be able to get basically loans from others that assess your level of skills and make a prediction on how successful you're going to be and what what income you can make later. So, I well, think I'm very big on income share agreements, and those have been, you know, where you the. Um, The educational institution gets a percentage of your earnings afterwards. Um, one of the things I haven't checked with Prospera, and I think this is where public opinion may be in our way, is I think that uh, the need for earning ability is so great uh, in much of the world that I'd like to see income share agreements be available you know, at younger ages. This is where, again, in some ways, the opposition to see child labor has these connotations of you know, kids in factories losing fingers in the 19th century. Uh, but, you know, if I want to help a 15-year-old kid make good money online, um, why can't I, you know, set up an income share agreement where I get a percentage of his revenue? Um, but I think right now an income share agreement for a 15-year-old would be regarded as controversial. That is definitely controversial, right? Because we're, like, even if you make sort of a very libertarian case for free choice, that model often breaks down when you have children or younger people, right? So we would want to have some we would want some way to, you know, assure that we're making a conscious decision um, from that they were capable to make as an, as an informed adult. Right. Right. I mean, here again, it was, I don't want to go too far down this road, but um, you know, in traditional societies, uh, people were, were considered adults much earlier. Andrew Carnegie, uh, Ben Franklin, John Muir, um, Thomas Edison all began their professional careers at 13. So there's a whole book called, um, the case against adolescence and adolescence was created as a category uh, in the 20th century. Prior to the 20th century, we didn't even have the category of adolescence. And so we've whole, created this whole category of uh, teenagers. So again, yeah, don't want to push too hard, but I think we've infantilized children and part of the adolescent dysfunction is we've infantilized them. Yeah. I, I see that. Like I see a trend online of teenage entrepreneurs And these are often extremely smart and extremely capable. And it's just comical to see what barriers they have to face in terms of bureaucracy, right? So I had this 13 or 14-year-old entrepreneur in Germany posting a list of things he had to do over the course of several months, almost a year, to get approval from like 21 different institutions that he's allowed to incorporate and start a business Exactly. And, and, and just to make clear, because there are people who think, oh, you know, no, um, there are uh, significant numbers of young people, certainly in the United States, gets into things like self-harm and cutting and for girls, you know, uh, eating disorders. But suicide is a leading cause of death for teenagers. And, you know, it's not like I didn't get to be an entrepreneur, I go kill myself. But it's more sitting bored and humiliated. I think 
education, traditional schooling is humiliating for many kids who don't happen to be the good at school kids. And so I always, and I've known kids like this, I, I imagine these, you know, here, teenage boys, teenage boys who are very energetic, capable, maybe very entrepreneurial. They're forced to, you know, take Ritalin, go, they are bored silly, they go smoke dope at lunch hour, and eventually they get, you know, drinking, doing harder drugs, going, joining gangs. <laughs> and if they were out there working in the world, they'd be much le less likely to destroy their lives. And, you know, people talk about the school to prison pipeline. I talk about the public school to prison pipeline. I think um, in the United States, a lot of young black males are bored silly and end up getting in trouble. And if we did not force them into this one size fit all, fits all school, um, again, millions of lives would be better off. Michael, I learned so much from you. I felt in many ways it was a journey through my own childhood and thinking or rethinking the um, the opportunities and choices that I had and kind of seeing them in a different light now as an entrepreneur and learning from a very experienced entrepreneur in the field of education like you. And it's just fascinating to me the opportunities we can create in the future and the potential upside we have in finding a better and more innovative ways to educate and develop people's skills. So thank well, you so much, you. Michael. Well, thank you. I hope you and I hope um, some of the listeners that are listening to this are coming to Prospera. I invite you to join us for a conference on October 28th to 30 um, called the Prospera EdTech Summit which will be an opportunity for 50 to 100 entrepreneurs and investors and innovators in the field of education to define and develop the future of education, right? So many of the things we talked about um, that I talked about with Michael today, we have the opportunity to realize and prosper. And we have very, we have lower barriers to innovate there than in other places. So I invite you to come and see it for yourselves and let's co-create the future of education together. Well, and thank you. And, and since I've been uh, Roatan, where Prosper is located, is spectacularly beautiful Caribbean island. So on top of the substance of the conference, an opportunity to go to a beautiful Caribbean island. Cocktails will be zipped at the beach bar. All right. All right. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.